We continue our series on joy, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 2. He's heard that there's conflict in this church. This church is his uh, crown jewel. No better church than the church at Philippi in terms of their ministry to Jesus, and yet they participate in something that we all know well, complaining and grumbling. It's part of the conflict. Before we look at that text, look at, let's look at Numbers chapter 11 where Moses is doing some grumbling of his own. Moses heard the people's weeping through their clans, everyone at the door of this tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. But I'm not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life that is in the day of Christ, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with, all, with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. The man's a billionaire. He lives in Seattle. He runs a tech firm. And to my knowledge, he carries no brief for the Christian faith. And yet, a few weeks ago, I heard him give a talk where he wasn't talking about technology, he was talking about greed. And the amazing thing to me is in his talk, he paralleled what Paul says in Philippians 2. He said, in all of my life experience, in all of the people that I know, in all of the circles I run in, I've discovered that the greatest desire of the human heart is for status. That's why one man buys a yacht that's 300 feet long, because the other man has a 200-foot yacht. We all crave status. Paul says it this way, do nothing out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of status to gain status, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Now think of this, he's talking to the church that is the best of the bunch. He's talking to a church where the Holy Spirit has used him to plant a church that's magnificent in this city of Philippi. And his message to them is not to gain status, but rather to do the opposite, to humble yourself and to get down low. 
Years ago at the University of Wisconsin, there was a group of guys that got together. They all were very good at writing. And so they formed a literary club, and they set the ground rules, and the ground rules were this. One guy would stand and read a composition that he'd written, and then all of the other guys would critique it either during or after. And as soon as they began this, I mean, guys ripped into the others. I mean, they really were scathing in their criticism. They, they basically ripped each other to shreds. And yet they kept coming to do it, and they all enjoyed it. If one was ripped, he'd rip the other guy more. And they began to call themselves the stranglers, because that's what they did. They strangled the life out of each other. About six months after that group was formed, another group was formed, all women who again had a great ability to write. And they took up that same technique. One woman would stand and read a composition, but rather than ripping her, they would compliment. They'd bring out the best points. They'd encourage each other. They'd make positive suggestions. And within a short period of time, they were known as the Wranglers because they would thrive and they'd bring more and more people into that group and it's interesting after 20 years there was a researcher at that university that decided to do some research and to see where each one of those two groups of people had landed in their career what had they accomplished amazingly all of the men had ceased writing not one of them had any job that involved writing whatsoever and yet the women nine of them wrote professionally. Several of them wrote plays and authored books and were very successful. So think about that. Two groups, both write, both have innate ability, and yet one group strangles each other and the other group enhances each other. One group succeeds, the other fails. Somebody has said all of human relationships, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, are based on bartering. We always barter with others, whether we know it or not. We're bartering based on our mutual needs, our mutual interests, our causes, our fears. We strike deals with each other. We form relationships based on what we can get out of it. We don't naturally live in close, harmonious, maskless, giving, forgiving relationships. Unless there's something we need, we're not normally drawn to another person, another friendship, another partnership. But when the Holy Spirit begins to drive us together, He begins to humble us. He begins to give us a, a, a place where we can take off our masks and we get low. We begin to thrive. And the reason we begin to thrive is because we don't take much thought for ourselves. We're more interested in the other. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. The Holy Spirit can drive us together not to get, but to give. Not to win, but to lose. Not to have a title, but to have a testimony. And Paul talks all about that in these five verses. 
So let's dig in. First of all, he says the first thing we need to recognize is the problem. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this isn't the first command that Paul's given to them from this Roman prison. In verse 3, he's given them the first command. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But here he builds on it. The first command is a negative. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or a desire for vain glory. But this one's a positive. He says, do all things without grumbling. Notice the first is to be avoided. The second is to be embraced. The second command, do everything without grumbling, flows out of the first command. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, quit thinking of yourself. Focus on your Lord and others and you will thrive. Mark Twain once said, don't complain and talk all about your problems because 80% of all people don't care and the other 20% think you deserve it. But that's only an avoidance technique. That only masks your real feelings. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to air my dirty linen because I don't want them to know about it. And besides, they don't care or they think I might deserve it. Paul doesn't advise that. Instead, Paul advises us to take off our mask. And he advocates that our natural tendency, which is to resist the mind of Christ, needs to be avoided We need to embrace the mind of Christ and turn away from our own thinking. This week I read about a tour guide at the Blarney Castle in Ireland. His job was to take groups of tourists around the Blarney Castle and tell them the history. And he talked about one group he had last year of Texans. He said when they showed up, they were already agitated. They didn't like the weather. They didn't like the prices. They didn't like their hotel accommodations. They didn't like the trip over to the Blarney Castle. They're all complaining. And then he said, I got to the place with them in the tour where they were to go down the steps to kiss the Blarney Stone, and it was roped off because workmen were doing repairs. And instantly, one Texan woman begins to cry, and she shouts, this is the last straw? I've come all this way to kiss this stone, and I'm not allowed to do it? And so I said to her, Madam, according to the legend, if you kiss someone on the lips who's kissed the Blarney Stone, it has the same effect. And then she says, oh, I understand. You must have kissed the stone a lot. And you want me to kiss you. And actually, I said to her, no, rather, I've sat on it a lot. (laughs) Now, that's one way to deal with grumbling. (laughs) But that's not what Paul advocates. He takes a different tact. The word he uses here for grumbling is actually a word best translated grudge-bearing. And the reason he uses it is because he knows the Old Testament. He knows that in the Old Testament there are four different kinds of grudges that are held by people. And we know all about them. In the book of Psalms, David whines. That's the first type. Remember what he says? 
This isn't fair. Why me? Why do the righteous get punished and the wicked flourish? He whines. That's the first kind of grumbling. And then there's the martyr. That's the second type. And that's what we saw in Moses in chapter 11 of Numbers. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody understands me. Nobody could do the job you called me to do. Who do you expect me to be? And then there's the cynic. We find the cynic in the book of Ecclesiastes and other places. But the cynic says, there's nothing good under the sun. Nothing ever changes. Why get my hopes up? As one of my good friends says, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And I'm wearing pork chop underwear. And then there's the perfectionist. The person who's always asking, couldn't you do a better job than that? That's what the Pharisees do. So whether it's whining or cynicism or being a martyr or being a perfectionist, what Paul is saying is we're all subject to a temptation to be that. It's all grumbling. It's all grudge-bearing. And it shows that we're not leaning into the Christ, we're leaning into ourselves. Because in order to do any one of those things, we have to be completely self-possessed and ask the question, why in the world do I have to put up with this? Then second, we have to realize the seriousness of the problem. Look at verse 15a, that you may be blameless and innocent. Now, what's Paul doing here? He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the record of Israel. And he knows that throughout the Old Testament, Israel is complaining and grumbling and holding a grudge against Moses and against God, and they're punished for it. And what he's saying is, just as the ancient Israelites grumbled and murmured, you must not do that. And while the parallel isn't exact, because in the Old Testament they grumble not just against Moses, but also against God, and here they're grumbling among themselves, what Paul is saying to them is, don't you know who you are? <clears throat> you are members of the body of Christ. You're part of His bride. Christ brought you together. Christ brought you from life to death. Christ has carried you through the waters of baptism. So that means you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are the people of God. So stop grumbling against each other because by grumbling against each other, you're really grumbling against the one who's made you and called you and saved you. Every grumble and every grudge is not just against that person. It's against the Lord Himself. Now think of this. Because of their grumbling, ancient Israel took 40 years to go two weeks. I mean, it was a two-week journey. And because of their grumbling, God said, you're not getting there in two weeks. It's going to take 40 years and none of you will make the promised land. I've promised you life in a new land, and yet you're going to die in the desert. Why? 
because their grumbling had a foundation and the foundation was this unbelief. They were convinced that God had abandoned them. They were convinced that they were the Lord of their own destiny. They were convinced that he may have had a plan, but it was flawed. And so what Paul is saying is this. Philippian Christians, Hebron Christians, your whining, your complaining, your cynicism, your feelings of being a martyr, your perfectionism, they are a testimony that belies what you say with your lips, which is Jesus is Lord. They're really a testimony that you are still the Lord of your life, and that's serious. Third, remember why you're here. Look at verse 15 in its entirety. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, why does Paul give him this command? He gives him this command not to grumble so that he can give him a vision. What he's saying is, that their grumbling and disputing is the opposite of their call. You see, Paul never, never focuses on one's individual salvation as being only to get them to heaven. Paul never talks like that. I mean, he talks about our eternal destiny, but he never focuses on the end result of your salvation, he focuses on the result right now. He says, he asks this question over and over again, why are you saved? Why does Jesus change your life? Why does He become Lord of your life? Why does He bring you to repentance? Why does He bring you to the place where you lay yourself down? And it's only for one purpose. So that you who used to walk in darkness might walk in the light and so others might see the light of the gospel. What Paul is saying is you are lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now it's interesting. Those words are not original with Paul. Peter has said it earlier on the day of Pentecost. He talks about the world as being crooked and twisted. But both Peter and Paul get that expression from the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking for God, and he refers to his people as crooked and twisted. Now, the word crooked means to be distorted. The word twisted means bent out of shape. And so what Moses is saying is that the people of God, the Israelites, have become distorted. They become bent out of shape. Instead of having the world conform to them, they've conformed to the world. They've lost their perspective. They've lost their shape. They're in danger. They're in danger of being living a life of constant dispute and grumbles. And in so doing, they become as dark as the world. They become useless. What Paul is saying is, as you live this way, you are useless to the kingdom of God. And then fourth and finally, instead of grumbling, Paul says, there's one way to quit. And that's to do something positive, and that is to rejoice. Look at verses 17 and 18. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith... 
I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice. Two months ago, at the beginning of this series, I mentioned a German scholar, and I'm sure you remember his name. Johann Albrecht Bengel. And writing in Latin, he summed up this letter in four words, Summa Epistoloi Gaudio Gaudiet, meaning what? This is the purpose of the letter. I rejoice, so you rejoice. Now, if anybody had a platform for grumbling, it's Paul. I mean, what possible good reason is there for him to be in prison in Rome? chain between two imperial guards. I mean, what did he do to deserve that kind of treatment? He did exactly what those Coptic Christians in Egypt did last two weeks ago, and they were beheaded for it. He shone in a dark world. He did nothing to deserve that. Not only that, he has his crown jewel, the church at Philippi, that's splitting apart because of their conflict, their grumbling, their disputes among each other. If anyone deserved to grumble, it's Paul. If anyone deserved to be inward, it was Paul. If anyone deserved to complain, Paul has a good reason to complain, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's focused on the cross. He has the mind of Christ. And let me tell you, the mind of Christ always takes you back to the cross. And when you see the cross, the cross shuts down all grumbling. Why? Because the cross says, this is what you deserve. The cross says, this is all you deserve. Jesus on the cross says to you and me, you put me here. You deserve this treatment. The cross says, if anyone has a right to grumble and dispute, it's me. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he lays himself down to make stranglers wranglers. He lays himself down so that you and I might rejoice in the midst of the conflict we face. So let me ask you this morning, are you more grumbling or more rejoicing? You know the great part of worship? It resets us. It focuses our eyes where they need to be. You know where our eyes need to be? Our eyes need to be on the cross because on your worst day you're not facing anything compared to what Jesus did and Jesus faces it for you and me it's the end of conflict it's the end of disputes it's the end of all grudge bearing To know that the one who had every right to do all of those things loved you too much to do it. So as you come to the table this morning, I'd encourage you and me to think about it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, as we've said, you have every reason to grumble, complain. You've done for us everything that needs to be done, and yet so often we live as though we are the Lord of our own destiny. We get bitter, we get angry, we think we know everything. We don't love one another as you've loved us. We think that we know better than anyone else. Father, we whine, we're cynics, we sometimes play the martyr, often we engage in perfectionism. Lord, deliver it from all of us, that our lives might be marked by gratitude and rejoicing. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.